Many of you will be familiar with the name Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry was born in 1622 in Wales, but he spent the majority of his life ministering next door in England. He was a Presbyterian minister. And he's most well-known in our day because he wrote a massive commentary on the Bible, a verse-by-verse commentary from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. It's enormous, or you can get it maybe in six volumes. And the commentary was well-known in his day as being practical, uh, applying to the common man. It was, it was easy to access, uh, to access and um, people like... Um, uh, what's his name, Uh, Spurgeon, uh, great Baptist preacher, George Whitfield, another great reformer, they all praised Matthew Henry and praised his commentary. John Wesley even wrote that the man who wrote this commentary had to have, quote, been a person of strong understanding, of various learning, of solid piety, and much experience in the ways of God, and on and on he goes like that. But Matthew Henry was not impervious to cultural pressures. In fact, he justified unjust social practices of his day. Here's what I mean. When you get to chapter 2 of the book of James, it's kind of a well-known passage. James says, don't show partiality among God's people. And then he gives an illustration. He says, a man comes into your assembly, and he's wearing a gold ring, and he's got fine clothes on, and you come and you seat him in the front pew, the good, the good place, and you attend to him. But then the guy coming in on his heels, well, he's dressed shabbily, and is that a word? Uh, in shabby clothes, he, you know, he smells maybe. And you say, why don't you just, could you just stand in the back, maybe in the corner? And here's what Matthew Henry says in his commentary when he gets to this passage. But we must be careful, he says, not to apply what is here said to the common assemblies for worship, that is, Sunday morning worship. For in these, that is, these morning worship services on Sunday, there certainly may be appointed different places of persons according to their rank and circumstances without sin, he says. So he says, well, this passage in James, it's really about, you know, kind of a judicial proceeding, and it's, it's really kind of like a courtroom scenario, and even though you're not show, supposed to show partiality here, that, that doesn't apply to Sunday morning worship. That's how he interpreted the passage. Now, I'm not telling you this in order to show you that Matthew Henry was a bad man. Quite the contrary, What I want to say is that even a man as laudable as Matthew Henry, even a man of his stature can be blind to cultural practices, can be blind. None of us actually has reached full maturity. None of us are immune from cultural tides, and all of us are blind to certain normal or acceptable practices in our personal lives, in our family lives, as a congregation, and as a church. None of us is all grown up. We're vulnerable to persuasion and to the cunning of the evil one. But God extends us grace. God gives to us the grace that we so desperately need. And then he calls us to grow up into that grace. God gives us grace, and then he calls us to grow up into that grace. Our passage this morning is found in an insert in your bulletin, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. This is our theme verse as a church, a passage rather, for the year. Let's read it together, and then we'll pray. But grace was given 
to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'm sorry, read along with me. It's a long passage. (laughs) Read along with me in your seat silently. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave them apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. May your spirit be among us, guiding us, teaching us what it means. We pray in your name. Amen. So, what I want to do here throughout the sermon is sort of repeat two questions I want them in the back of your mind. What is God's grace, or what is the grace that God gives to us? And how does he call us to grow up into that grace? What is the grace that God gives to us, and how does God call us to grow up into that grace? Well, in verse 7, the first verse in our passage, it establishes that God, in fact, does give us grace. He extends us grace. Then he qualifies that. He characterizes it. He says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's kind of a strange way to characterize God's grace. According to the measure of Christ's gift. What does it mean? What is the measure of Christ's gift to us? Well, in verse 8, Paul pictures Jesus and asks us to do the same. He pictures Jesus through the lens of Psalm 68. He quotes from Psalm 68 and he applies it to Jesus. And he asks us to see Jesus through that lens. And the picture is of a triumphant warrior. This is a conquering general or a conquering king, uh, right? In Paul's day and in David's day, kings and generals would go out to war and they would, they would leave their city and they would go out to another city and they would fight a battle and they'd fell the city. And then they would take people and they would uh, plunder the, the king's riches and the holy places and they'd gather all the treasure and then they'd come back to their city and like a big Mardi Gras procession down Main Street, they'd have a parade celebrating the victory of the general, captives in tow, treasure in hand. This is the way that Paul is asking us to look at Jesus, right? He's, he's uh, the, the triumphant warrior. He's the great conquering king. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul adds a commentary. You'll see in your scripture insert, it's in, it's in parentheses. It's sort of a comment on what it is that Paul is saying here. Now, these verses are complicated, and they are, um, 
disputed in terms of their interpretation, right? There's something about Paul maybe changing some words from Psalm 68 as he quotes it. Uh, there's this whole issue, well, what's, where is he ascending to? And, well, was that when he came down? You know, what's going on here? Well, I want to kind of skirt a lot of that, and I want you to focus on two things. I want you to remember, or I want us to discuss uh, and think about how high, okay? And I want you to think about how low. How high is Christ's exaltation? And this is what theologians call the exaltation. Christ was raised from the dead, uh, and he was among his disciples. And then at the end of Luke, the beginning of Acts, you see him taken up into heaven, From there, he sits at the right hand of God in victory and then eventually pours out the Holy Spirit onto his people. Theologians refer to this as Christ's exaltation. Okay, how high? But then also, how low? How low? This is what theologians refer to as Christ's humiliation. The Son of God, before he became Jesus, was with the Father in heaven. He came down as a little helpless baby laid in a manger, He lived the majority of his life in relative obscurity. And when he finally began uh, his mission, right, he was scorned by his family. He was opposed by the religious elite. Uh, One of his closest disciples uh, uh, betrayed him. He was uh, hung in a kangaroo court, essentially. He was hung on a cross, abandoned even by the Father himself. This is Christ's humiliation, And so when Paul says, what is the measure of Christ's gift? The measure is from the humiliation all the way to the exaltation. That is the measure of Christ's gifts. Think about it like this. The greater the victory, the greater the triumph. The greater the triumph, the greater the treasure. And the greater the treasure, the greater the gift. When the general would come back into town with all the gifts, if it was a huge spoil, he would dole it out to his lieutenants. The king would share the spoils with his generals. That's what Paul is picturing for us here, is an ascended Lord who achieved a great victory over death, over sin, over the devil, and now the spoils of that victory he shares with us. That's the picture that Paul is painting of Christ for us here. Jesus' triumph is total. It's over death. It's over the devil. It's over sin. And now he sits at the right hand of God above the heavens, the only place in the whole universe where you can fill all in all. That's what Paul says. This was the measure of the grace that God gives to us and the measure of the gifts that we receive. I'm going to give you an illustration that's going to help you think about this and apply it to our our lives. There's a man named Simon Weisenthal, and Simon wrote a book called The Sunflower. Maybe you've heard of it. Simon was Jewish, he was Polish, and he was captured by the Nazis during World War II. And he was taken to an internment camp. And when he was in that camp... Uh, you know, he was doing me- kind of menial tasks, cleaning up something. He was approached by a nurse. And the nurse said, are you a Jew? And he said, yes, I am. She said, come with me. And so he went into a building. He followed her down a corridor and turned into a dark, musty room where a lone soldier lay in a bed, bandages wrapped around his face, eyes covered, only holes for his mouth and for his ears. And his name was Carl. And Carl said... I must tell you this horrible deed because you are a Jew. And then he goes on to recount the story of how the SS, of which he was a part, 
went into a small Ukrainian town. The Russians were retreating from the town, and they had left booby traps for them and killed 30 of the SS soldiers. So as a plot of revenge, they rounded up all the Jews in the town and put them into a three-story building. They poured gasoline on it, and then they lit it on fire. And then Carl was one of the soldiers that stood in a circle around the building and shot people who tried to escape. I am left here with my guilt, Carl says. In the last hours of my life, you are with me. I do not know who you are. I know only that you are a Jew, and that is enough. I know that what I have told you is terrible. In the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk to a Jew about it and to beg forgiveness from him. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Carl did not deserve the forgiveness that he was asking for, but it was what he so desperately needed. But think for a moment, Simon. Think of the cost for Simon. What was the cost of the forgiveness for Simon that Coral was asking, sitting in that room? What was the cost of extending forgiveness? What was the cost of extending grace? The measure of grace that Carl was asking for was enormous. And ultimately, Simon would walk away without saying a word. Grace is costly. Where can we get the resources to extend that kind of grace? The answer is that we can only get it from Jesus. The grace we now receive from Christ cost him everything. But it also gained him everything And now the spoils of Christ's victory over sin and over death and over the devil, he extends them to us so that we can in turn extend them to other people. This is the measure of Christ's gift to us. This is the measure of God's grace to us. So then we must examine our own lives. Against whom do we hold grudges? Who are we failing to extend grace to? Many of us may be very angry about the way we were raised, about our parents. Some of us have overbearing parents, making us feel small or belittled. Others of us maybe have have had absent parents who weren't there, who didn't show that they cared in any way. Or maybe it's with a coworker or a friend that we bear our grudge. And I would bet that there are people who are holding grudges against those who don't even know they've done anything wrong. I've succumbed to this. I don't stand up here as someone who hasn't. How do we find the resources to walk the long road of forgiveness? Where do we turn to find those resources It's only by turning back to the grace of God given to us in Jesus 
It is through his death and resurrection that he became the victor and the spoils of that victory he shares with us. Those are the resources that we take hold of in order to forgive. Growing up into grace means laying hold of the grace that God gives to us in Christ in order to extend it to other people who are just as undeserving as we were. And Paul gives us so much more here than that. We can keep asking this question, what is God's grace? What is God's grace and how does God call us to grow up into that grace? In order to get at that, I want to ask a bit of a peculiar question. What is the form that God's grace takes in our lives? See, we can be tempted to think about God's grace as a kind of an abstract thing, disconnected from people, but that's not really grace at all. In fact, that is only the idea of grace. Grace only becomes grace when it is applied to real people in real circumstances and in real situations. That is the only way grace ever is grace, is when it takes a form. So in what form does grace come to us? Paul says in verse 11, gave them apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And each of these is a minister of God's word in some way. God's grace comes to us as a word through persons. God's grace comes to us as a word given through persons, right? There are apostles. Apostles were people uh, like Paul and like Peter who had seen the risen Christ with their own eyes and were given a commission by him to take the good news to the world. Um, Prophets were those who were given particular messages for particular occasions by God. Um, Evangelists are those, there's some dispute, either who could, you know, are really good at sharing the good news of the gospel with people, um, or some think that they were particular people, like Timothy and Titus, who were appointed by apostles to go and share the good news. And then there are shepherd teachers, and that's the modern day pastor, that's what we have, right? And what I want you to pay attention to is look how many, look how many God gives to us. Right? Jesus, the word of God, came down in the flesh and walked among us. Surely that would have been enough. But no, God gives us apostles. And then on top of apostles, he gives us prophets. And on top of prophets, he gives us evangelists and then shepherd teachers. And look at what it's all for. In order to equip the saints, that's all of us, to equip the saints to build up the church. God's grace is manifold in its manifestation. Apostles, prophets, teachers, messengers, saints. It's, it's like a waterfall rushing into a stream and the ripples just go out as far as the eye can see. That's the form that God's grace takes in our lives and in this church. God is not frugal with his gifts. Grace is given in order that grace might be extended. That's why God gives us grace. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. We've been studying the book of Corinthians, and I'm sure Ron will get to that passage at one point. It lists many of the spiritual gifts. They're also found in Romans 12. Let me give you a short illustration to help you understand the way that God intends for us to, to dole out his gifts once they're given to us. It's a story called Babette's Feast. And I'm going to tell a really short version of it. But essentially, there's a small fishing town in Denmark 
where a patriarch has founded and has formed a small Lutheran sect that was very austere. They ate basically nothing but bread and water. They wore all black. And he had two daughters, and they took over this small sect after he had died. One day, a woman comes knocking at their door, and she's got a note. She speaks French. She doesn't speak any of their language. They're hard to understand here. But this note comes from an old friend of one of the sisters. And it says, here is Babette. She has nowhere to go. She has nothing left. She's fled Nazi-occupied France. And she's arrived here. Please, take care of her. Put her to work. Give her room and board. Oh, and she can cook. And so time passes, 12 years in fact. And Babette herself gets a note in the mail. And it's from some of her friends in France. They had been entering her name into the lottery every year. And she'd won. She'd won 10,000 francs Babbitt had won. And of course, the sisters are actually kind of sad about this because Babbitt's going back to France. There it is. But in fact, it coincided with the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the birth of their founder. And so Babbitt said, I've never, I've been among you 12 years. I've never asked a favor from you. Let me do this. Let me cook you a real French dinner. And they reluctantly agreed. They felt like they couldn't say no. And so on the day, all these crates arrive with these strange animals. And there's like baby quail and turtles and and all kinds of vegetables and this strange thing and champagne besides. And Babbitt sets to work and she's cooking in the kitchen and the smell permeates the house. And there they sit at the table. She'd scrounge just enough china. And they had this sumptuous and fabulous feast. And at the end, it really broke down a lot of that rigidness. And the people were outside singing. And the final scene is Babbitt sitting in the kitchen. The kitchen is a total mess and she's utterly disheveled. The two sisters sit with her and she says, you know, I was a cook at the most famous restaurant in France. And the sister doesn't even really hear her. And she says, I guess you'll be going back to France now. She says, oh no, I won't be going back to France. She says, well, what do you mean? You won the 10,000 francs. You can go home now. You have enough money. She says, no, actually I spent it all on this dinner. She said, at my restaurant, 10,000 francs is about what it would cost to feed 12 people. And I wanted to do right by you. See, God gives us gifts not for ourselves, but so that we can extend that grace in service to others, in love. So think for a moment. We always have to do this. What does this mean for us? How do we respond to this? What about the grace that you have been given in Christ? What are the gifts that you have been given? What do you use them for? Do you make a lot of money? Do you give that money away, or do you think about the next addition to your house or the next car that you will buy? Are you gifted with encouragement, but you avoid difficult people, people who are needy? What about leadership and mercy and wisdom and knowledge? What do you do with your gifts? Do you use them for yourself? Do you hoard them? Or do you extend them to others as God intended for you to do? God gives us gifts not for ourselves, but so that we could extend that grace to others in service and in love. And he lavishes us with gifts to remind us that we can afford it. We're on God's tab now. We can afford to extend grace. There's one more question that I want to ask, and it's what's the purpose of God's grace? We've touched on this a little bit. 
But what is the purpose of God's grace as it's laid out here? In the book of Ephesians, there are two main metaphors that Paul uses for the church. First is the temple. He pictures the church as this dynamic living temple of God filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's probably the dominant one. The second one he uses is of a body of which Christ is the head. And that's the one that's in view here. Let's read it together. Not together. I'll read it. And you listen. Follow along. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the image that Paul gives us for the church. It's the image of a body of different parts all working together in harmony. Different churches across the world living or working together so intimately aware of who Christ is and how they belong to him and what is the knowledge of the living God and how are we united together in faith and in that knowledge and in God's spirit, all working together for the glory of God, growing up into the one who is the head. The body builds itself up in love. But it is through grace, through the grace of God, that it grows. It is a grand vision of the church in the world that Paul lays out here. So in tune with Jesus, so in tune with the mission of God, that they all function together as one body with Christ as the head. This is the fullness of Christ that Paul talks about here. His grace in his word, through his churches, to cover the whole face of the earth, extending grace to every part of creation. Nothing short of this is worthy of the cost of Christ's death. And nothing short of this is worthy of the place to which he has been exalted. This is God's holy project in the world. The growing up of his people Maturity in Christ, it is nothing short, but it's nothing but except the kingdom of God on earth. That's God's vision for the church. That's God's vision of maturity. God's grace comes to us in a word. It's a message about what God has done and the offer that he has for you. And in his word is real power to live out the grace of God. So God gives to us grace, and we are called to grow up into that grace. And Paul gives us the most remarkably humble instruction for how to do that, for how we are to get there, how we are to grow up into the grace of God. We are to speak the truth in love. God's grace comes to us in a person The Word, Jesus. He is our grace. He is the source of life. 
It's in him that we find grace. God's grace comes to us in a word given through persons so that we can turn and extend that grace to other people. God's grace for you and for me and for all of us to share with one another. God's grace is the truth spoken in love. Let's pray together. Father, you give us your word. Lord, sometimes we don't realize how powerful it is. Father, I pray that you would teach us that we might not tear one another down, but rather that we would build one another up in love by speaking the truth in love. Lord, we can't do this on our own or by our own resources. There's no chance. But with you, we can. So we pray, be with us. Amen.